I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is the last Thursday of the month, and that means this month in birding with a panel of fabulous birders to talk birding news of the last few weeks. I want to get to that as soon as possible. But first, a little bit of housekeeping the ABA is a membership organization, as you might have heard in my outros. As such, we do an annual membership meeting. This year, it will be in conjunction with the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival, um, which is on Friday, November 11th at 6 p.m. local time. I think it's central. Uh, always a good bet that we have a, a fair number of members there. But even if you are not attending, you can make your voice heard. In fact, we encourage you to do so. Not only will we be streaming the meeting on Zoom, if you want to attend virtually, you can get that link, but perhaps more important would be uh, or a request from me to fill out a proxy ballot. You can do so virtually with a downloadable PDF. The link will be in the show notes. There are a few board members to approve, some changes to the bylaws, updating language and having to do with running an organization in the 21st century with I know, computers and whatnot. It's pretty pro forma stuff, but we do need people to fill those ballots out and get them in. So if you're a member and you're listening, uh, please do so. You can find the link in the show notes again. Um, anyway, that that's just some general announcements. Let's get to the fun stuff. We have a great panel, Gabriel Foley, Frank Izagiri, and panel rookie Sarah Swanson. We talk state of the birds, weird hybrids, and woodpecker brains, among other things. But first, this was your birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of October 2022. Another pretty impressive week on the Rare Bird front in the ABA area. California's first wood warbler was a highlight last week, and that first state record was followed a few days later by yet another old world Velocophus warbler, this time in the northern part of the state. A willow warbler was seen by many birders in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are more willow warbler records in the ABA area than wood warbler records. But like the latter, willow vagrants are pretty much exclusively found in western Alaska. I believe in addition to being a first California and first lower 48 record, this is actually a first mainland North America record. I suppose the same could be said for the wood warbler last week as well. A couple more firsts to note for the week. The District of Columbia is having quite a run of Western rarities, as for the second week on the trot, it boasts a first, this time a McGillivray's Warbler. And nearby in Virginia, that state's long-awaited first record of tropical kingbird was discovered in Northampton County on the eastern shore, where one would probably expect such things to occur. So Virginia gets on the board for 2022. This is their first first of the year in their climb towards 500 for the state. They're very close. Those are the highlights of the week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. It is the end of the month, and that means this month in birding with a panel of birding friends. Uh, it is October which is a fantastic month for birding in here in the Northern Hemisphere. There's no denying that winter is on its way. 
There's also no denying the quality of this month's panel. Let me introduce them to you in reverse alphabetical order. A podcast panel rookie and author of the brand new best little book of birds, The Oregon Coast from Portland, Oregon, a place that is absolutely lousy with bird podcasters. Welcome, Sarah Swanson. How are you? Oh, thanks so much, Nate. I'm excited to be here, and I'm happy to report that it has finally started raining in Portland. Oh, wow. Mm. That is the first sign of fall for, for Portland is the rain. Yep. Very and nice. the wildfire smoke has abated, so we're all feeling a <laughs> lot better. Fantastic. Wonderful. What a, what a time of year. What a glorious, magical time of year. Um, <laughs> he is an editor for Birding Magazine, uh, the second best host the American Birding Podcast has ever had, uh, among other things. <laughs> Welcome back, Frank Izagiri. Hey, Nate. Always, always a pleasure to be back. Yes, for sure. From the wilds of central Maryland, he is the Bird Atlas Coordinator for Maryland and D.C., and I frequently forget a former radio professional. He's the host of a show called The Prairie Naturalist. I had no idea. I bring him on because he's a ringer. It's Gabriel Foley. Hi, Gabriel. Thanks so much, Nate. I'm excited to be here. So good to have you here. It has been a month full of bird news, uh, both in terms of vagrants and lots of interesting stuff that has come out. I'm going to start with... uh, I don't mean to start on a down note, but I guess uh, there's no other way around it. Uh, the State of the Birds came out this week, this um, you know big report that details the changes in bird populations over however long, very, very long time. It, it is not looking good for birds. A lot of bird species, a lot of bird groups, a lot of birds that require certain habitats are, uh, are declining, as, as so many of us are aware. It is always sort of... Um, I don't want to say depressing, sobering to see it in such stark terms with these uh, graphs and these charts um, all sort of pointing in the same uh, direction. I am I'm torn by, you know, obviously there's a need for this sort of data. It is rough to look at. Um, I try to stay positive. There's a lot of bird conservation success stories out there that I like to point to, but um, there is a critical need to restore these ecosystems. They are under a lot of stress. And um, just another just another data point. I don't know what you guys think about it. It hit you. It hit me right, right, right where it hurts. I guess. I I think like there was the the state of the birds for North America that came out just the other day, and mm-hmm. just before that, there was the state of the world's bird, mm-hmm. or the world world's birds, and that one for me, like I I read that yeah. one first because it came out first, and mm-hmm. like. It was like 49% of the world's bird species are declining. Only 6% are increasing. And just like mm. uh, that, that just like honestly ruined my day. I was, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going on a, on a trip to uh, Saskatchewan shortly after that to uh, go look at mm. whooping cranes, which at least are like this really nice conservation success, success story. story. But yeah. it was, you know, this terrible juxtaposition where you've got like, the the big picture of things is awful and it's gonna get worse and it's just so hard not to not to like just fall into that but i was i I was talking (laughs) i was talking with one of the one of the tour group members and you know he was an older guy and he said to me you know what gabriel it's really it's really hard but um you know he said this quote, hope is a moral imperative. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, you have to stay hopeful because if you don't, then you just, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You won't do yeah. anything. That's a good point. And it's like, oh, man, 
that's I, if yeah. there is some silver lining to point to it's the fact that we do have these success stories you know when you give birds opportunities to recover they are really good at recovering like really good at recovering i don't know any other vertebrate there are very few warm-blooded vertebrates that can you know replace their population in a year like birds can um mm. given an opportunity to do so and it's there you go there's there's hope if there is there are some trends that go in the upward direction geese, geese and swans geese, <laughs> yeah. i love that graph because it's like geese and swans 1076 percent oh it's like geese geese stocks are soaring and like i wonder they probably they probably should have like taken canada geese off that if we're going to get a realistic look at at, at how those populations are doing yeah I don't know. I find those kind of reports so hard to look at. I feel mm-hmm. like I've been looking at bi- bad environmental news since I was a kid reading Ranger Rick. Yeah, and sure. it's just like a lot to absorb every day. And it does have the power to just take the wind out of your sails and, you know, be yeah. really depressing. And if I'm depressed all the time, you know, I can't do work that that helps to fix those problems. And so sometimes I just, it's kind of like watching scary movies. Sometimes for my own like (laughs) mental health, I just have to like not read all the details of all those Mm -hmm. things. Cause I, I kind of know the plot and I, (laughs) I don't, (laughs) I don't necessarily need all the, the really rough details every time, but I'm glad that this data, you know, is, is being gathered and that it exists. And, and maybe some people need to see it as a, a kick in the pants to do yeah. more. It's like the the wicked. I just need to read the Wikipedia plot summary of the horror yeah. movie to know exactly what's going <laughs> to, to, to to get my curiosity sated. Exactly. <laughs> Without having to watch the actual thing, it makes me wonder if when reports like this come out, based on what how we're talking about how we react to them, mm-hmm. what it must be like to be someone who analyzes this data and writes about it what kind of emotional discipline do these people need how do they develop those skills is i don't know it just it just seems kind of incredible that people are able to you know presumably these are people who care deeply about birds how do you how do you like muster that kind of resilience like look at these things objectively and see that there is mostly bad news yeah i think it must be very hard it must be very hard i i think i asked a question like that when i talked to um um, a person who was working with Kwai Forest Bird Recovery Program, you know, yeah. those are people on the front lines of the extinction crisis in a way that, you know, a lot of us can't even comprehend. And and it is hard. It is hard to see this stuff. It is hard to look at birds that you know personally and watch mm. them decline. Mm. And um, <laughs> it's almost like you, you've got you've to compartmentalize that such mm-hmm. that you like you know that this is happening i know that this is happening but i still want to get out there and go birding and see birds and get other people interested in birds who might eventually turn into conservationists and advocates down the road like it's it's you've got to you got to separate it you got to hold it in two sides of your brain and and i'm not saying that's easy but it is something that i think that birders as because we are so often witnesses to this stuff have to do yeah i appreciate gabriel's comment about hope and I think yeah. that that's something that will probably need to be a part of the conversation 
even more as as climate change effects pile mm-hmm. up and everything. But I, I like the idea of it being a moral imperative because we can't just give up. I mean, that's the other option, right? Is right. to just be yeah. be overwhelmed and just curl up in a ball and watch Netflix <laughs> and not not try anymore. So yeah. yeah, how do we how do we get up every day and and find hope? Well, thankfully, the avocation that we all we all embark in is pretty hopeful. Yeah, you know, it's a great time of year to feel hope when you watch these birds coming back, um, traveling such long distances successfully in many cases over and over and over again. That's a pretty hopeful thing. Birding is good for that, at least. As long as they come back. As long as they come back. That's right. I guess we'll find out. In, in I still need to work on my hope, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about a very strange hybrid. And I, I volunteered to, to cover this story because it's basically a Pittsburgh bird. Mm-hmm. It's a rose-breasted grosbeak and scarlet tanager hybrid. It's the first time this hybrid has ever been documented. So those two species are in, they're in Cardinalidae, mm-hmm. so they're cardinalids. Um, but they're really quite distantly related within that family. Um, there had, like I said, there never been a hybrid documented. Um, so this birder, the Pittsburgh birder, this was in July 2020. So it was a couple years ago. He heard, I, be, I believe what happened was he heard like the chick burr of a uh, scarlet tanager. Mm-hmm. He was in Lawrence County, uh, Pennsylvania, which is like a little bit northwest of, of Pittsburgh. And I, I know Steve, he's, I don't know him super well, but, uh, you know, he, He's a really nice guy. He's a really phenomenal photographer. He's one of the best, maybe the best bird photographers in the Pittsburgh, Western Pennsylvania area, which was nice because he got great photos of the really birds, nice photos. which was cool. So that, <laughs> yeah. that really helped with like this. There's been like a little bit of a media blitz because um, I'm t- sort of telling the story in, in out of order chunks now. But OK, so Steve heard the chick burr and he followed it to try and photograph the bird. and. It did not look like a scarlet tanager. So that, so he was like, oh, what is that? It looked much, to me, the bird looks much more like a rose-breasted grosbeak, mm-hmm. although, you know, it has yeah. characteristics of both. Yeah. Um, and so it was really, really strange. And so I tried to find, in preparation for this podcast, I tried to find, like, I remember there was, like, in our local chatter, like, there's, like, a group me and there's a messenger group that I'm in. I, I know I saw people talking about this weird bird right when it happened. And I tried to like find some of that stuff to, to see like if something fun, like interesting was said, but I couldn't find it. I don't know where, I don't remember where I saw that. Um, but eventually, a few days later, uh, Steve was able to go with um, another or a local ornithologist, Bob Mulvihill, who has contributed to Birding Magazine, and they captured the bird successfully. And so genetic uh, sampling was taken and that led to a published paper. Um, and the people that are on that paper are like who's who of you know local birding and local ornithology. Tessa, Tessa Reinhardt, former, former AVA podcast guest. Who, who did you say? <laughs> Tessa Reinhardt. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Tessa was on there. She's and she's also Love contributed Tessa. to birding. Um, so that's that was great. Um, Steve got to you know he was one of the authors as well as was Bob uh, and several other people. And so they, you know, they sequenced the bird, they did the genetic testing, and they found out that, so it's a first-year male, the bird. Mm -hmm. The father is a scarlet tanager, 
and the mother is a rose-breasted grosbeak. And it seems like a healthy individual, so uh, it's not known whether this bird can reproduce, uh, maybe sterile, as often happens with hybrids, I'm sure mm-hmm. many listeners know that. But so anyway, that's, that's, that's the story, basically. I mean, it's, it's really cool. Steve is a really nice guy. And like I said, his photos are really excellent. So mm-hmm. that's just really cool that he got to make the discovery. It's just so, so nice when someone, he's like really the kind of guy, he's like out there consistently. He goes like he, he, every weekend he's checking out some nice bird area um, in, in the area. And it's just really nice when people get to make those kinds of incredible discoveries. Like it's, it's a first um, mm-hmm. in, in science. Um, so anyway, that's the story. And uh, it's, it's cool. Does it feel like to you that birders are better at picking at finding hybrids than they have been? Because like this is this is this is a crazy looking hybrid. This is a really cool bird. Um, the famous choriole, the yellow-breasted chat oriole <laughs> hybrid, is out there. It feels like not a spring goes by that there isn't some bizarre warbler hybrid that gets discovered somewhere and someone gets photos maybe people are just better at getting photos of everything that's weird that they see that's probably it you know in the past people would get would see a hybrid and they wouldn't think anything of it because they couldn't get a photo and their memory would be shaky after the fact and be like well that was a weird warbler it was probably i don't know a yellow rum but now people get photos of weird things that they see and you know you can parse those photos and you find all sorts of really cool stuff i don't know if this is accurate or not but it feels like people are finding a lot more of these these things than they I, have been. Yeah, I mean, I do think I do I I do think the photos and digital photography are a big part of it. But mm-hmm. I also just think that as birding becomes more popular, and there's so many resources uh, available to birders to like hone their skills, um, and you know, people just people are good at detecting things that are different. Yeah. Um, so that's a nice yeah. thing about the growing popularity of birding is that it does. Uh, filter into like new scientific discoveries. Yeah. So yes, I do think people are getting better at it. Mm-hmm. And the access to like to experts too, mm-hmm. right? Is yeah, so sure. much easier. Yeah. You know, you can go to like, uh, you know, there's multiple different Facebook pages or yeah or whatever where you can post things that you think are weird. And um, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But yeah, I think that plays a huge role. Like you have that, you have that digital photograph or recording or whatever and then you have people who are more knowledgeable than yourself about some particular area i'm just imagining if i had been in this position i feel like i would have heard the tanager and then mm-hmm. i would have gone and i would have seen the growth speak and i would have been like ah i guess the tanager left like yeah, exactly. I, don't know if I would have been thinking yeah. like wait a minute did that like I would have gone like with the most parsimonious explanation and would not have figured that out. So good for these people. I'm yeah. really impressed. <laughs> Pro- probably that happened to someone. I feel like I would have seen the bird and been like, "Oh, it's a weird rose-breasted grosbeak." <laughs> <Too. Yeah. laughs> like I, I might not have thought anything of it. So yeah, yeah. better birds than me picking these, <laughs> these things out. How often do you guys see hybrids? Because I do not see hybrids very often. I know the Pacific Northwest has some interesting hybrids that you run into from time to time. I mean, we've got like the the Townsends and Hermit warblers, yeah. and yeah. I mean, don't get me started on gulls. I mean, I see <laughs> oh yeah, a, all your gulls. Are I, I see hybrids yeah. uh, every day, all winter at the coast, yeah. and yeah. I wash my hands of it and I leave it right. like that. Let's <laughs> exactly. just say that my little pocket-sized uh, bird guide to the there Oregon coast does not include hybrids um, <laughs> of gulls. That's that's not covered. 
it is hard for maybe novice birders who come to the Pacific Northwest and get out there and are trying to, you know, play the picture matching game when they're, <laughs> when they're, and then, you know, you, you find these birds that are not Western and not glaucus wing, but some like unholy amalgamation of the two. Yeah. I mean, they could be, they could be those Olympic gulls. We've yeah. got, mm-hmm, you know, there could mm-hmm. be some glaucus gull in there. Yeah. There could be some herring gull in there. Like, it's so bad with the the glaucus <laughs> the glaucus winged gulls just hybridize with like yeah, everything. everything. It's rough. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's what surprised me most about this this hybrid is that like when I think of hybrids, I think of like your gull hybrids. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, so yeah. with everything. Your your waterfowl. You waterfowl, know, lots of stuff going on there. Stuff, yeah. You yeah. know, some like sister taxa where mm-hmm. like they're pretty close related. Or, or like rarities where you've got a bird that shows up and hasn't got anything else, like some shorebird or something, right? Mm-hmm. But scarlet tanagers, rose-breasted grosbeaks, both like fairly common forest birds in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so what was the circumstance that led to these two individuals yeah. joining up and deciding like that this is going to work? I could not imagine a place where a scarlet tanager or a rose-breasted grosbeak could not find right, right. the correct mate, yeah. the, the mate of its own <laughs> yeah. species. Yeah. It's, yeah. And then that makes you wonder, like, how often does this happen? Like, right. if mm. we found one, did we find the only one? Or, <laughs> yeah, like, what are what, the odds of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, how often is this happening? Like, were they both vagrants? Like, yeah, you want to know the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got to put a GPS tracker on this bird yeah. and see what happens. Gotta check your chick burrs. That's right. Check your chick burrs. <laughs> check yeah. your chick burrs. <laughs> this took me back to journal club in grad school. I haven't done like a close reading of a scientific paper like this <laughs> in a little while. So um, I read about shearwaters and whaling. So a study out of the University Cork, Ireland, and reported on by girl scientists in Forbes, um, shows that even small amounts of oil on the water can be dangerous to seabirds. So the methods for the study, they took um, some feathers from a bunch of live Manx shearwaters and put them through a series of tests, the feathers, not the shearwaters, after exposing them to varying amounts of crude oil, similar to uh, what birds would get from spilled oil floating on the ocean. Mm-hmm. As Manx shearwaters um, do spend a lot of time uh, floating on the surface of the ocean, as well as flying around like shearwaters do. So uh, the levels that they used in increasing order were none for a control, um, a trace sheen a dark sheen, a standard slick, and a severe slick. So these are just different thicknesses of oil floating on top of the water. So um, the first finding uh, was not very surprising. So feathers exposed to heavier oiling uh, became heavier in mass. So in the case of the heaviest levels of oiling, some of those samples increased their mass by a thousand percent. So um, oil sticks to birds, it makes their feathers heavier. When, and it's easy to see how that could be a problem. So next, the researchers tested how long it took for water to percolate through oiled feathers. So these different levels of oil, they 
uh, pushed water through them in a scientific way. And it's easy to see how this could apply to uh, the waterproofing of seabirds. So all the oiled feathers absorbed water significantly faster than the control unoiled feathers. So even those with the lightest oil treatment, um, water moved through them significantly faster. So any amount of oil is bad for seabirds. And then they did a cool test where they looked at feathers um, under a microscope to determine the quote, amalgamation index, or in other words, the clumpiness of the oiled feathers. So they were like really looking at like the little barbs and how Mm -hmm. many of them were stuck together to make this index. So they did this with the feathers that had been exposed to the water and the ones that had just been exposed to the oil. So the feathers that had been exposed to both the oil and the water were significantly clumpier. And then the treatment with the highest level of clumpiness, and this is kind of the, the twist of the paper, was actually the dark sheen, which was the second lowest level of oiling. Hmm. Oh, so wow. it's pretty noteworthy that um, even just small sheens of oil, like those produced by small spills or just from shipping activity or offshore mm-hmm. drilling, could have these significant effects on the waterproofing of seabirds. Because we already know that heavy oiling has all these different detrimental effects with toxicity and things like that. But the risk of even small amounts of oil on the ocean is becoming clearer because clumpy birds are not happy birds. Not at all. I remember maybe a decade ago uh, when there was a proposal to uh, increase offshore oil drilling Mm -hmm. in North Carolina, where I live. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I know a lot of the Seabird enthusiasts, I know, and just were were very against this, obviously, because the the concern was that uh, there's a certain amount of spillage that's in that's you, you can't avoid it with these sort of uh, efforts and and any sort of and, and this was actually right after Deepwater Horizon, so a lot of this stuff was oh, very yeah. much in in people's mm-hmm. minds uh, as a as a as a problem. And uh, thankfully, they ended up not not doing it. It was one of those things where you know oil companies wanted to search for oil off the continental shelf instead of to see if they wanted to drill but they already sort of knew that there wasn't a lot out here um and they they didn't it didn't happen but thankfully because obviously we all know the western the gulf stream western atlantic is one of the most you know biologically rich places on the planet when it comes to seabirds and and we definitely do not need uh oil out there there's there's enough garbage out there as it is um without you know birds dealing with uh dealing with that so yeah, I guess I'm I'm not surprised. It is sort of frustrating to see that the relatively light oil, the stuff that comes from just regular boats moving around uh the sea can be detrimental. I I think we are we forget the the threats that the ocean is under just because the ocean is so yeah. big and all this stuff just sort of dissipates into the into the water. I mean, the ocean the amount of water there is Un like unfathomable. That's not a pun, but um, <laughs> it's, it's it's true. Like literally and figuratively and pun pun comedically, um, unfathomable. <laughs> Even the Deepwater Horizon, out of sight, out of mind, and people have sort of forgotten what 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 that was like. And he emphasizes the need to get off uh, these sort of fossil fuels, these dirty these dirty fuels, and into something that's that's better. I'm not sure that those massive wind turbines uh, off the co- the continental shelf are are all that much better when it comes to birds. Um, they probably are a little bit, um, but I guess you have to, you know, 
crack a few eggs to make an omelet, as they say. Yeah, at least the effects are mostly happening right there, and you can't have yeah. a wind spill right, that right. that drifts off and spreads around. I mean, exactly. That's the that's the problem. I think uh, we're used to, or at least the public is used to seeing the dangers of oil in huge amounts, like mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. deep water, mm-hmm. or on the west coast, the yeah. you know Prince Edward Island, and um just like seeing these poor birds that are just unrecognizable because right. they're covered in oil. And it's like just a sheen of oil can mess up these birds. I mean, we're talking about like, you know, tiny Microns. amounts spread across yeah. a mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. area. And that's, I know, I mean, it should probably be a wake up call when we're looking at the kinds of development and how that could add up. Mm-hmm. And when we think of threats to birds, a lot of times we think of like mortality events. So like mm-hmm. yes. outdoor cats, uh, you know, wind turbines, um, collisions with buildings, like all these things. You have a bird, it hits this event and you don't have a bird anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But a lot of this, a lot of the threats are not so, you know, binary. They're not so distinct. They, mm-hmm. you know, you might just get a little bit of oil in your feathers and that decreases your ability to, you know, procure food and yeah. maybe there's less food available. Mm-hmm. And now your nesting success is lower than it was. Yeah. Maybe it fails completely. And so it leads to a population that that goes down and, you know, it just kind of is a compounding effect. Oh, yeah. yeah. The seabirds are, are very much like living in very extreme circumstances. We don't always think about that when we go out on a boat and we see that, you know, petrels cruising around and doing their thing. They look like they're completely in their element, but the ocean is more mm-hmm. or less like a, a bl- big blue desert. And like the food is very localized. And mm-hmm. when, you know, that food is unavailable because there's a oil sheen there, then that's a real problem for these birds that are living on the, on the extremes of avian abilities. Yeah, we sit out a lot with seabirds on the West Coast with mm. uh, marbled murrelets, um, pelicans, you know, things that eat these small fish and that are, and the small fish are really strongly affected by ocean temperature. Yeah. And so if it's time for you to nest, like you can try to move further south to find them or further north, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, MERS will nest and there just won't be food for them to feed their chicks. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. yeah. And then you'll just see chicks wash up. You'll see adults wash up because they've totally exhausted themselves. And so some of the stuff is invisible. I mean, it's mm-hmm. yeah. it's a lot harder to study, I think, than than land birds. But we're seeing some, for sure. some clear signals about these dangers, as Gabriel says, that aren't just like a bird hits a window and it's dead. But yeah. these like decreases in fitness that add up in, at a population scale. I wonder what the application for... It's interesting to talk about like um, what we've been saying about how just little bit of oil can harm these birds. I wonder what like the application of a study like that will be in um, you know surveys, population surveys for, for seabirds that may be declining. I wonder if people will be able to like cite that as like a potential... If that if that's like a discovery that uh, well, that you would have to see if the you know the rise in I don't know the rise in shipping or whatever would correlate with a commiserate decrease in in seabirds in the you know major shipping lanes or something like that because you know there's hmm. oil in the water. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you do that work, but I'm sure that the data is out there. If someone, I wonder if you could really catch a in. bunch of them at their burrows. I think that's what they did for this because it's right. you know, hard to catch them in the ocean. Yes, um, hmm. and just 
I wonder if you could do kind of a broad study about how oily they are to Mm. start with, with these kind of artificial oils. Like what's the kind of background level of dirtiness that these birds are dealing with every day? I don't think that we know. Yeah. 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 Hmm. And perhaps this knowledge about the impact of oil should also be included in the damages that we're estimating and charging companies for when there's spills. Exactly. Because it's it's yeah. not just the super gross birds that we need to hose down. It's also, you know, these birds that are way out at the edges of where these oil spills are spreading that it mm-hmm. turns out are being affected. We, we need all the pelagic companies to do a class action lawsuit against <laughs> Exxon and BP. And... It. Sounds good. I read this article and I got so excited about it because it sounded so cool. And I was like, yes, this is what I'm going to this is what I'm going to talk about. And it is really cool. But <laughs> good. I thought that was going to be something no, like, and it turned out to be no terrible. <laughs> this is very really cool. Poorly done. But my goodness, do I feel out of my depths on this one? This is a genetics paper. And I am oh, the furthest right thing okay. from a geneticist. Like, so I read the paper a few times. I have like several pages of notes. Going to oh, try. All right. Okay. Going to try and uh, just give you my interpretation of it, which, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, it was published in PLOS Biology, but um, had several authors on it. The lead author was Eric Shoup. It was published last month. And it is really cool. Like this is a, I think you could say like a legitimate, like novel discovery about, about bird brains. Um, and so the whole thing is like, okay, there's 40 different lineages of birds. Three of them have the capacity that we know of have the capacity to learn song. Those are songbirds, you know, parrots and, sense. and hummingbirds. Those okay. are the three that have been identified. Now, this this group of researchers thought, OK, let's test and see um, in other species that we presume to be birds that don't learn their songs. Let's see if their brains look different from birds that do learn their songs. So they tested seven different groups. They're, was like a whole smattering. There was hawks, penguins, flamingos, taracos, ducks, um, emu. And then the last one was woodpeckers. And, you know, I, I think nobody's very surprised that they didn't, that they found what they expected. The brains looked different in, you know, those six groups of birds that I mentioned, the penguins, flamingos, etc. But the woodpeckers, they looked the same as the songbirds. Whoa. Mind-blowingly cool. So, uh, as it turns turns out, it is not exactly the same. It is analogous to, to how a songbird's brain operates in terms of regulating song. And the area of the brain that regulates song is the same area of the brain that learns song. So, uh, these researchers, they then tested their... They, they thought, okay, wow, we've we've got something here. So they they went and they looked at whether um, this brain activity happens when the woodpeckers vocalize or mm-hmm. when they drum, and uh, they found that none of the right brain activity when the birds are vocalizing. It's just when they're drumming, and so their kind of conclusion to this is that woodpeckers have evolved like a parallel path to um, 
to regulating their version of a song, um, mm-hmm. their drumming, and can like alter it based on different contexts as well. So apparently they, I didn't know this mm-hmm. about woodpeckers, that they will change their the length of their drumming um, and the speed of their drumming based on like the the conflict that they're in. Their their actual quote was that increasing drum speed or length profoundly enhances the display's threats to competitors. Huh. Um, and apparently that's all regulated by this part of the brain. So their next question then is, okay, if in songbirds, the part of the brain that regulates song is the same part of the brain that allows you to learn song, and woodpeckers have this the same brain activity happening for their song regulation, are they then learning their song? Like, do they learn it the same way that that Hmm. songbirds do? And so they are, they say in the paper that there is um, active research going on into this right now. So I'll be looking forward to seeing those results. Yeah, so sometimes I guess um, some birds like learn the wrong song. I guess we we see that every once in a while. I guess that imp- implies that woodpeckers can learn the wrong drum. There's a downy woodpecker out there, you know, wailing away on a tree trunk like a palliated woodpecker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this works. <laughs> Maybe uh, I'm wrong. I don't so know if I'd be able to tell if it, if it was. Would the female? birds then process hearing that the same way oh, that songbirds do? Yes. Yeah, so the the same brain activity happens in male and female woodpeckers. Okay. Hmm. Um yeah, I don't know if if they like if everything else is the same as songbirds, but the activity yeah. exists. Okay. Cool. It's been a banner year for uh, woodpecker brain studies. First, yeah. there was the one about how they, uh, you know, they don't hurt their brains when they drum. And now there's one about how they process drumming like bird song. Man, Woodpecker's been doing all right in 2022. How do you, <laughs> how do you guys feel about drumming identification? Like identifying woodpeckers by oh, their drum? Good question. I'm bad at it. Be- uh, okay. Only on the most common birds that yeah. I hear a lot. And I'm talking like, Sapsuckers. Yeah, I was going to say sapsuckers. If it's a creaking rope, I can do that one. Sapsucker or not crap sucker? Yeah. I mean, that's something that I've I've looked at because, like, Sibley says you can do it. Yeah. But I don't find it. says. I know, right? Sibley can do a lot of things that I can't do. He knows what it's like to be a bird. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but I mean, presumably there's difference in speed, but yeah. and, and length. And but then you're telling me that they change it up to like sound more serious about their threat. And so does that mean it overlaps with other species? It's pretty interesting. They they also indicate that you are able, or not you, that other woodpeckers <laughs> are able to identify individuals. Which Ooh. I think has been shown in uh, in songbirds. I think songbirds can do that, yeah. Because yeah. I've heard so, yeah. an individual songbirds can have kind of distinctive uh, song. You know, the cardinals in my neighborhood, I can sometimes tell which ones are around by their, their preferred song. They've yeah, up and I yeah. can see that in songbirds, but in woodpeckers, that's pretty cool. 
Yeah. That yeah, they can sure. identify this, individuals. This one, had, this one had 23 drums instead of 24. That's uh, yeah, yeah. Like, how do you process that? I don't know. I don't know. One time I was on a walk with a few really, really, really good birders and I heard drumming and I went to get the leaders and I asked them, there's a woodpecker drumming. What is it? And because I figured that, you know, really, really expert birders know that. And I felt like at that time, I felt like a lack of skill myself, <laughs> not being able to identify all woodpeckers by drumming. Oh, yeah. And so when the you, leader Frank. of the walk said to me, um, I don't really know my my drummings or whatever he said, something like that. I was like no astonished, like, whoa, like <laughs> fallibility or something, you know, like, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, now, now thinking about that question, I want to look through Nathan Pieplo's books mm -hmm. and see yeah. how he handles that for Thanks. woodpeckers. Um, I don't know. I'm just curious to, to look through his books, specifically his two field guides about bird sounds and, and see how that's presented in those books. I think part of the difficulty with uh, woodpecker drums is that the substrate that they're drumming mm. on makes a mm -hmm. huge amount of difference yeah. in mm. how the how the drum sounds, right? So if a if a Carolina wren is singing, it sounds more or less the same no matter where it's singing. Uh, it might sound a little more distant if it turns its back to me and sings the other direction, but more or less, I can be pretty confident that that's a Carolina wren. Now, if a red-bellied woodpecker in my backyard is drumming on a, a hollow sycamore or whatever versus a not less hollow, I guess the I guess the woodpecker, when it's displaying, is going to find the most resonant piece of wood it can possibly find. But I don't know if I can tell the if the subtleties are are. I don't know if I, I'm aware of the subtleties. I don't know if I could pick that up. It makes it even Excuses. cooler that woodpeckers can. <laughs> yeah, and that, yeah, fair. Yes, and that thank you. they can tell individuals despite the individuals, mm -hmm. you know, probably right. using different trees and stuff. Right. That's pretty cool. I mean, I assume it's about the pattern and not the quality of the sound. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Yeah, they. this paper indicates that it's really based on the rhythm of, okay. of the, uh, no, of the drumming. Sense. Mm -hmm. Huh. Yeah, I guess I should pay attention to. to I, 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 I've, I've been birding forever. I have never tried to identify woodpeckers by their drum, well, except you, maybe like a downy woodpecker when it's foraging and it's like, tick, 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 yeah, it yeah. like that's about it. I've never I've actually tried, tried with like black-backed woodpeckers and yeah. stuff when I'm mm. looking for them, but. Again, the call mm. note so much easier. <laughs> so much easier. And it's usually there. You don't have to worry about yeah. it. If if you're gonna be doing any atlasing though, um mm -hmm. and this paper actually fits really well into this, the yeah. um the drumming is considered to be singing for the breeding code singing. Nice. So right. you don't that code them sense. if they're calling, right? You code them if mm -hmm. they're drumming. But it's really annoying when you hear a woodpecker drumming. And you can't see it. Yeah. And like, yeah, I don't, I can, I have a hard time with, so with identifying. I couldn't tell the difference between a red bellied or a red headed or a northern Merlin flicker. Can Merlin tell the difference? You know what? Uh, it does. I don't know no. how accurate it is. Probably because Merlin's pretty, pretty good. But um, right. Yeah, it definitely does identify drums. Oh, now I got to try that. Yeah, well, I know. In the spring. I mean, yeah, not I now. I'm going to have to. <laughs> I guess it's it's we're at, we're at here at the end. It's time for the question 
of the month. It is October. Um, there is one major holiday for that everyone, pretty much everyone celebrates in October. That is Halloween. I'm asking you, this is a question that I've actually used in this month in birding before and in October one, but you have to go back at least two years uh, before I did it. You're, you're welcome to do that. It's it's a totally different panel. So um, um, you should all have new answers. I'm I'm curious if you have ever taken part in a bird costume dressed up as a bird yourself or seen a really good bird costume so that's my that's my question of the month what is the best bird costume you could come up with so i've never i haven't dressed up like a bird since i was like seven right i was a bluebird adorable yeah no doubt (laughs) as an adult i have not but I came up with a kind of a behavior-based costume um, that really, really low maintenance on on the outfit. So you just are going to wear something kind of drab. It's brownish gray. And what you need are some candy eggs. So hopefully you can order some or you have some from Easter. And so you're going to your Halloween party and you're just going to sneak around and then when people aren't looking, you're going to drop a little candy egg in their drink. I see where I'm going with this. And so you're sneaking <laughs> around. And then if anybody <laughs> finds the egg and tries to take it out, you just slap the drink yeah. out of their hands. Say, go go nuts on them. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you get where I'm going here yes, with my amazing. female brown-headed Cowbird costume. Yeah, very nice. Oh, and yeah. I want to go to a Halloween party now just, just to, to do, do this. Probably yeah. work best with other birders. Yeah. I might get some otherwise, weird looks. Kind of... Otherwise. <laughs> otherwise, it'd be a, a long evening of explanation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That was very good. Um, my my idea was <clears throat> I I did not have a whole like like plan for the night (laughs) um i have i have a poster by my computer and when you know when i read this question i was looking at that and it's a poster of all of the state birds and oklahoma state bird scissor tail flycatcher oh man edward scissor tail flycatcher So that that's what I went with. <laughs> Johnny oh Depp, except with like a scissors taped to your back or something. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I, I, see it. I struggled because I don't like Halloween and I don't like costumes and I don't like holidays in general. But <laughs> okay, however, sorry, I, sorry, very sorry, Frank. Frank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am, of course. <laughs> so, okay, so so, but I wanted to you know do a good job with the question. So. I tried thinking about if there were any costumes that I had um, that I really liked as a kid. And the costume that I do remember enjoying um, when I was pretty little was I dressed up as Dr. Grant from Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was pretty fun. And, you know, you could even argue. I interpreted the question as like bird themed in in any way. Yeah. And so, okay, well, that's proto bird. You know, you could you could make the argument. So I was trying to. okay, so. Uh, maybe I could think of a cool costume that would be like sci-fi or fantasy themed because, um, you know, those genres lend themselves to costumes well. 
And so I wasn't really, you know, I was thinking, okay, Lord of the Rings has the Eagles, but I don't really think there's anything there. And so I was thinking maybe sci-fi, but you can't like really go birding in space. Um, but then I did remember. <laughs> Star Wars has tried. There have been birds in the various Star Wars, some of the Star yeah, Wars, yeah, oh, bird-ish I mean, sort of creatures, I guess. So, yeah. So Forks I, have teeth. Well, I, I started thinking about Star Trek. So I was, you okay. know, like one, well, I don't know if you guys are trackies, but I, I was thinking about how one thing a thought I had about Star Trek at some point was that, you know, like in the Federation, there's the three different officer types. There's like command, engineering, and science. Mm-hmm. And I always thought like, there's not really a character, maybe in some of the news shows that I haven't seen yet, but there's not really a character that's ever been like a naturalist or a biologist. No, and never. In the Star Trek universe, I mean, O'Brien's, Chief O'Brien's wife, Keiko, is a botanist, which like plays a minor role in a few... Um, You're making a few of our listeners very happy with these references. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, a, anyway, few, but, a very well, few. Well, very hold on. It's, <laughs> it's coming. Like, I so, wait for so, it. I, I, I just always thought that there could be like a, like a biologist character. I mean, like oh, yeah. Star Trek is like teeming with life in different planets. Um, so, but then I was thinking, okay, so like a birder like a, or an ornithologist like a federation ornithologist like but what's what's there it's just like oh a person wearing the green uniform with like a binocular or something that's not that interesting (laughs) but then i was thinking okay i'm getting there i'm getting there so i was thinking okay well like the thing with birding is like sometimes it can be like surprisingly dangerous it can be kind of tough and i was thinking more about like why people like to build big lists and go birding in you know, somewhat out there situations. And it's because of the glory and of the honor. And I realized a Klingon birder would be an excellent <laughs> Halloween costume. You could have a, your bins could be like a bat lift, like with the bins inside. And so you could use your bat lift yeah. as bins. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking more, it's like, Man, this could be like a good spin-off series. Like you could have like a pilot episode <laughs> where there's a Klingon birder and a Romulan birder and they get they're chasing this rare bird on this remote planet, but it's like a really dangerous planet with dangerous wildlife and they have to work together to survive against all odds. So I'm just saying, like, if there's a producer out there listening, <laughs> I'm ready to write the episode. So that was my journey so, to answer so, your question. Uh, two, two things, uh, Frank. <laughs> I can't imagine there are any stringers in the Klingon birding community. That would be a death sentence. That's right. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good and point. two, just hear me out here. Jean-Luc Picard. Oh. oh. Or Beckard, a, I guess. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> However yeah. you pronounce it. Of course. That's all I got. That's all I got. Very good. Um. I told a story probably the last time we did this about how I went to some Audubon uh, board retreat back when I was uh, on the board of a local Audubon group and, and it was uh, on Halloween and everyone dressed up as a, as a bird that was part of the costume. And I, I explained my own costume, which was a, a blue-headed vireo, uh, which I wore just glasses and a, um, and a blue cap <laughs> and a gray <laughs> sweater. <laughs> but um, one, of the, one, of the, one of my co-board members actually took it a step further and he wore a um, bright pink pants bright pink sweater and he had taped a plastic spoon to the bridge hey. of his nose with the he was a roseate spoon doll nice which i thought was pretty good 
Um, just mo- mostly impressed that he had uh, bright pink pants and a, and a bright pink sweater, both of them. Uh, that's that's commitment to the bit. But um, <laughs> I, I was also thinking like shoe bill. Maybe there's a shoe bill uh, costume out there. We just put a shoe uh, on your face. Uh, you I don't know how you do that. Your shoe though. Then you have to smell <laughs> your shoe. Exactly. This is, this is a very large hole in this uh, in this idea. I mean, little kids dress up like penguins and owls pretty pretty frequently. So. But anyway, those those are those those great. That was exactly the sort of discussion I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody should dress up as that owl that stole the hobby horse. Yeah, and was flying around oh, with it. Oh, oh yeah. Um, oh, that would be a good costume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, you're you're really good at this, Sarah. Oh um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Anyway, if anyone has, if anyone dresses up like a bird this year, I hope that they um. They send us pictures and I'll post them in the show notes for this uh, for this episode or the next week, uh, because I don't think I think it will be not quite Halloween when this gets out. Thank you so much, Gabriel, Frank and Sarah. Um, we'll, we'll all have you back uh, sometime in the future. This was a lot of fun. Sarah, congratulations on your book. If you uh, want to support Sarah and you want to bird the Oregon coast, please check out the best little book of birds. Oregon Coast. Um, everyone else, I'll have links to your social medias and stuff if you want people to follow you on Twitter and whatnot, if Twitter still exists by the time that this comes out. And uh, <laughs> and otherwise, um, thank you so much. Please enjoy your Halloween, bird-related or otherwise. Not you, Frank. I know that you're, you probably won't do it anyway. <laughs> have a great have a great fall. Have a great November. It's coming up. And uh, we'll, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much, Nate. Thanks, Nate. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. You know that we are a membership organization and you can help support this podcast by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are a number of benefits, magazines, discounts to partners, travel, also the feeling that you're contributing to a bigger and better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. You get more information about membership at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week to Rachel Lawrence of San Francisco, California, Stephen Arnold of Holly Springs, North Carolina, Martha Collins of Bozeman, Montana, Sally Davidson of New York, New York, and Peter Paul of Brooklyn, New York, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who recalls an anecdote about Sir Patrick Stewart birding in a marsh. He hears a rail vocalizing in the distance and turns to the eBird recorder and states solemnly, make it Sora. Technical production is by John Lowry, who insisted on referring to an owl prowl in the Pacific Northwest as the search for spot. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who has a weird habit of referring to a mixed sea duck flock as teaming up, Scoter. You can find us online at aba.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. As we reach the end of this podcast, let me say farewell to all those listeners out there with a weird hand gesture and an invocation to live long and warbler. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. I'll see you next week.